So, hello again. Hmm. Um, tonight I have uh, the honor of sharing the Dharma talk with Tanisara. So you can kind of think of it, think of me as the opening act <laughs> for the <laughs> for the headliner. So we're going to be talking tonight about uh, a little bit about transitioning um, from retreat into daily life. And so as we approach the closure of our time together, our assembly, um, this amazing group that's been really involved in some um, beautiful practice, sincere practice. And like the dewdrop that Kitasaro described, you know, for a time it comes into being, has this wondrous existence, and then it dissolves. And it dissolves according to its own schedule. So I know some of us in the group felt like um, we were ready to go a couple days ago. Or uh, <laughs> some of us just feel like we're just settling in and, and, and just getting going. But the retreat is on its own schedule. You know, it's ending tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I wanted to begin just by sharing a little story about my arrival here at Spirit Rock um, earlier in the week. I had just come off uh, a little over, I guess, two, two, three weeks ago, um, my own retreat, about a month-long retreat in Barrie, Massachusetts. And... um, the way my schedule worked out that I had to basically drive from Barrie to Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's about, it took about 20 hours or so. And then I had about a week to get a whole bunch of stuff done. So, um, you know, packing a, a lot of my um, primary possessions, closing up my office somewhat, taking care of all sorts of business. And so I didn't have the kind of time and space to just relax after retreat. And um, right after that, I uh, had to drive to Durango, Colorado, where I only had, it was about like a 28-hour drive. I had about three days there. And then, um, and then I drove here. And um, there was another <laughs> uh, a long drive. So. <laughs> um, but I arrived a, a, a day before the retreat would begin. So I, I even forget which day that was, but it was a day early. And... Um, and I had this intention, oh great, I'm here, I'm gonna rest up, I'm gonna enjoy the evening, nobody's here yet. Um, I'm gonna really take care of myself. So the next morning I, I woke up and um, the rain had stopped, so it was a beautiful day. And I had this intention of, okay, I'm, I've had a really busy few weeks, I haven't been out exercising, I haven't gone out in the woods or hiking or taking care of myself. So I had this intention of, I'm gonna really just treat myself well today. I'm going to go out in the morning, go for this beautiful hike, you know, reconnect with the land and, um, and then come back, take a nice shower, go up in the town, go to Good Earth and get some yummy food and come back and I'll be ready for the retreat. So I go up um, hiking, taking the trail um, beyond Upeka and, um, you know, I'm, I'm up there and somehow... I, I get lost back in the woods. And it's really um, surprising because when you look up there, you can see it's not that big a woody patch. <laughs> woody patch. But um, somehow I got lost. So I spent some time wandering and finding myself on like animal paths and um, weird trails that looked like trails but weren't. And uh, I never got you know, afraid, but I started to feel the sense of real impatience and irritation um, arising, and then these thoughts were were threatening to, you know, take over. Like, um, you know, I really wanted to take care of myself. It's not going according to plan, and um, and time's running out. The retreat, you know, I, everything I had planned and hoped for wasn't going to work out. So at some point, I just stopped and and checked in. And I, I had this sense of feeling into oh, there's these good intentions. Um, 
there's this irritation, there's the self-judgment about, you know, how can I be, how silly to be lost at, at Spirit Rock. <laughs> <laughs> and in that pausing and that stopping, I, I took a moment to look around and there was this tree in front of me blanketed in this like shiny, brilliant green moss. And the mist was just starting to evaporate off of the grass and the grass had these little dew drops and the, the air was so cool and, and crisp and beautiful. And in this space of uh, that appreciation, there's a sense of letting go of my agenda and letting go of the clinging and this real deep sense of gratitude arose. Gratitude of being back at Spirit Rock and knowing I would get to see my teachers and, and these wonderful friends and then to be a part of this retreat. So yes, I was lost um, and, and things were sort of going, you know, the way things go, not according to plan. But, you know, I had this experience of gratitude and joy and, and um, ease. So I mention this because maybe you've had a similar experience coming into retreat. And we come into retreat with these wonderful intentions and um, maybe some expectations and, and maybe even some ob- objectives. And then, you know, like I mentioned, the retreat unfolds in the way it often does, which is that it does so in the way we don't expect it to. And sometimes very much in the way we don't expect it to. And it's also natural to want to begin to evaluate or appraise our experience, like how, how is the retreat going you know, for us? So my invitation here in, in sharing this is that we can see, see if we can practice easing up on the appraising. You know, how much samadhi have we had or how many insights um, that I have today or yesterday or compared to the last retreat or sometimes even thinking, you know, how many times was I mindful today? You know, how many times were, you know, there's so many ways that the mind can really start to uh, want to measure a sense of progress in what we're doing. When I um, began uh, retreating in, uh, years ago in the Zen tradition, people would ask me like, did you have a good retreat? And and the way I would always respond was, well, I sat this many hours. Or um, if it was a really good retreat, I'd say I sat this many hours and I only changed my posture this many times. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's a really funny way of, um, of how we um, approach things and how we can evaluate and label things good or bad in our minds. So when we soften on judging the retreat, we can actually rest in trusting that the retreat is unfolded exactly. And in that unfolding exactly, it's unfolded perfectly as it should have. And in absolutely no other way than it actually did. So it's not that it's bad that we, you know, want to get a sense of how we're doing and and our progress and our evaluation, but that we um, are at risk of being overly caught in the judging. And then we can miss seeing what's right in front of us. So Jaya spoke the other day about, um, in her talk about gratitude, about stopping. Um, stopping as a way of, of feeling into the moment, connecting, the simple act of uh, being with how it is. And I recall in the telling of um, Kitasaro's story actually about the, the serial killer Angulimala, the, the person who had the fingers on his, the bracelet. And... Um, so he's, you know, the story is just as a reminder, he's like chasing after the Buddha and he's running and the, he keeps running and he never seems to be able to catch up to the Buddha no, no matter how quickly he's running. And at some point the Buddha, um, he yells after the Buddha to stop and of course the Buddha says, you know, I have stopped, you, know, you need to stop. And in that moment, um, uh, this voice popped in my head, it's almost like a mantra that said, stop chasing the Buddha, stop chasing the Buddha. And and it it really connected for me in the sense of like, oh, stop looking for the awakened, your awakened nature out there that we'll never catch up, that we can stop and look right here, trusting that we're right where we need to be. So when I stopped in that, um, in the woods behind, uh, 
Upeka, uh, this beautiful landscape was waiting. So it was waiting for me to pay attention. It was waiting for me to listen, to look, to let go of my, uh, my thinking and, and judging. And I love walking down after the morning uh, practice down to breakfast and I'm always sort of curious like what view will await me as I walk down to the dining hall and it's going to be foggy is there going to be a beautiful sunset so we can ask ourselves what is waiting for me when we stop rather than looking for how we fell short or we didn't do enough or maybe we feel like we didn't open enough on this retreat or or maybe we're reveling actually in what we accomplished or gained in this returning to presence, asking what blessings are waiting for us? Gratitude, peace, non-contention. One of the blessings that we might experience is a a stronger connection or feeling of chanda. So chanda is this wholesome desire and sincere motivation to cultivate our practice. So on retreat, as we're practicing and engaging in this diligent way, we might notice that this chanda is more forceful. It's been stoked by our experience on retreat. So in Buddhism, we know there's a lot of emphasis, emphasis on getting rid of delusion, uh, desire, I'm sorry. But chanda is desire that actually arises from our wise reflection and wholesome intention and not from greed, aversion, and delusion. So it's something that we um, are aspiring to cultivate and connect with. And we can recognize the fruits and blessings of this practice are rooted in our intention, our good intention to wake up, to see clearly and be free. And using the energy and momentum of our retreat experience, we can nurture this interest in practice, this chanda, tend the flame that lights the path. So some of the ways that we might discover um, sort of harnessing this energy is Maybe we reset some, uh, reconnect with old intentions, or maybe we set some new ones about our practice. Maybe it fuels our sitting practice. Maybe we can connect with some of the devotional practices that we've been involved in, the bowing, the chanting, the mantra practice. Maybe we're really interested in learning more about Kuan Yin. I had... um, during the week, I had a conversation with the spirit rock teacher, Donald Rothberg, at lunch, and he was talking about how he has, for the past 35-plus years, um, done what he calls Sabbath practice, which is taking a, a day off each week to basically dedicate for um, practice. So he comes here and does that, and he's been doing that for decades. And so for us, it could be some sort of setting aside time. It doesn't have to be a full day. It could be half a day. Or maybe it's even just a half a day without our cell phones. Some setting of an intention. Or maybe we're really interested after hearing some of the suttas to learn more about um, these teachings and, uh, and study them. And, or maybe we've heard all these Pali words being thrown around and like, oh, I'd like to more, know more about what, that, what that's for, about. Or maybe we want to seek out spiritual friends or communities because we've enjoyed sitting with each other and it's something we haven't done as much before. So we look out for new groups. Or maybe it's even just exploring our relationship to practice and finding a way to balance um, our practice and the things that we have to do in our daily lives. For me, um, even just being up here, I get a chance to sit. I, get, I feel like I'm in the retreat. There's so much you know, steady, um, uh, positive energy that it does feel for me like there is some experience of being on retreat. And so I have this um, heightened sense of chanda as well. So I have this intention to explore uh, home retreat practice. What's it like to... Uh, practice when I'm just at home for extended periods of time. I have this uh, desire to learn the great compassion compassion mantra uh, and memorize it, actually. 
And I'm also very interested to learn, I shared a video with the teaching team, the Korean version of that mantra, and to explore that. And, you know, the, at the great compassion ceremony that we did, when we, when we, um, at the very end, we read that beautiful vow. Um, that's something I want to incorporate into my practice, sort of recite that and remind myself of, the, of um, what we're doing here. So listening to oneself, you know, what practices do we connect with on retreat? What feels important to sustain and carry forth? What has awoken and what are you inspired by? But it's also important to remember to be realistic, to pace ourselves and recognize that at some point, you know, this momentum, the chanda is going to start to weaken. That integration after retreat um, into our daily lives isn't always easy. So we can watch again those expectations after retreat. You know, those expectations that say that, oh, because we went on retreat, we need to be, we need to be better meditators or better Buddhists or our samadhi should last, or we should always have the same feeling as we did when we chanted Kuan Yin as a group, like all the ways in which you want to just hang on to that experience. Or maybe we feel like we shouldn't be bothered by people or pressures or, <laughs> you know, and, and so we pretend. Um, one of my sits here, I had this memory arise where I was on a month-long retreat and... Um, this was a, a few years back, and I remember I was, it was uh, during the, near the end of a walking period. I was sitting on a bench by the edge of a lawn, and this yogi started approaching me, almost like gliding. And she seemed to be like um, enveloped in bliss, you know, and um, she walked, she, she sort of came over, and I was really curious, like, oh, what, you know, what's going on? And she bent down in front of me and, and plucked this blade of grass as if it was the most precious thing in the world. And she kind of held it and looked at it. And then she placed it in her mouth and ate it. <laughs> and, and after she ate it, she kind of looked up and had this blissful, joyous countenance, you know. And, and um, it, it was like... It, it, I remember feeling like it was uh, watching a movie, and <laughs> and uh, it, it's so funny. Even I, it just recalled in that moment um, the line from that movie. I forget the movie, but where where Meg Ryan's in the restaurant and the woman's like, "I'll have what she's having." <laughs> I was like, "I'll have what she's having," and um, so we so we walk back into the meditation hall, and I'm I'm thinking like, you know what what's going on? Why is she like this? And I'm sort of here just with my breath and just <laughs> dukkha keeps coming in. And so we sit down to meditate and, and, um, and then I hear, you know, somewhere a little bit in front of me, just like, <clears throat> <clears throat> and this goes on for a few minutes now. And I look up and I see it's that yogi and I just, it just dawns on me that that blade of grass is stuck in the back of her throat. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and literally for the, almost an hour, she's trying to clear that, <laughs> that blade of grass for the, from, from her throat. And um, I mean, even though this, I, I mentioned this story not because it's so much about her experience, but just watching... <laughs> my mind and I, I, although I admit I did feel a bit of like sat, like you know satisfaction in, <laughs> in that moment and I, but it, it, it's really funny because um, life life is exactly like this it, it's always um, bringing us back down to earth and to reality and Tanisara shared the um, story, uh, the, the teaching about the salt crystals the other day, where you can take the um, salt crystals are like the dukkha and the karmic knots, and you can put that in a little um, glass of water, and it's really salty, but then you put it in the, the river or the ocean, and it's, and it's dilute, and it has less of an impact. And then she said that, that there are so many salt crystals, 
that we have to face. And, and that's so true. We have so many salt crystals and we have so many blades of grass that we have to, <laughs> to, to confront. But this is part of being human. This is part of having this body. But it's also part of, um, part of our practice, part of this path. So just remembering that we can soften and we can, we can um, be more realistic and kind and, and allowing of when these bumps and obstacles and challenges impact us. So as we feel some of the ordinary pressures return, our samadhi wanes, and some of that um, life seems to impinge a bit more visibly on our system, we miss the container of the retreat, um, we have a break from our daily problems, maybe we start to sit a little less. We can just recognize, remember, this is all part of the retreat, and this is all part of coming back. And so in those moments, we can um, touch back into the refuge that we've tasted for ourselves and known on this retreat, the bowing, the chanting, the great compassion ceremony, these openings we may have had, moments of connecting in our work meditation. So for me, just stopping and resting from the judgmental mind in, you know, in the woods. And so these beautiful activities of practice can remind us whether we know it or not, and even at times despite ourselves, that paramis, these beautiful qualities are being strengthened. Patience, ethics, letting go, determination, energy, equanimity, kindness, wisdom, generosity, and truth. And that we can trust that these experiences have touched our hearts and that we've planted seeds that will um, yield uh, just amazing fruit someday. And we can rely on and trust in this refuge. We can gain confidence in this path and our own ability to awaken, to rest and ground in presence and to receive the support of spiritual friends, Sangha, our teachers, Kuan Yin, and that we can always begin again. So thank you for your kind attention. so beautiful to uh, um, hear your contemplation, Young, and uplifting and funny. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. um, I also resonate uh, very much with this sense of the joy and beauty of uh, having shared this time together. And also the, the preciousness of it. I, I don't um, take that for granted at all, actually. Um, that um, that bring these circumstances that have brought us together and enabled us to sit in this um, sort of stew that we've been in together, um, sort of marinating in the Dharma and in our collective uh, support and our collective challenges. That that is um, that's a very precious um, experience to have, and it's not available for 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 many many people. Um, just to be able to take the sort of the, the the pressure off off the daily life and and come into this protected environment. So it, it has felt an, a, a sense of blessing actually, and um, really also to. Um, being with our team, we've we've really enjoyed being and working together. It's been a lot of fun, and we've we've had a you know a lot of um, laughs, <laughs> and um, a sense of mutual support, and and um, working with the the managers who I just was thinking tonight. I, I think they should be called wizards, master wizards. Because they are extraordinary, the, the, how they're just sort of fine-tuning and moving around and picking up what's going on and helping and soothing and pointing out and resolving and you know putting these threads together. It's um, and it's all a bit unseen to the to the the, the yogis and you know, what goes on in the background. And 
And then all of the cooks, you know, preparing this really high-class food. It's been exquisite food, very balanced and very good for meditation retreat and um, a lot of it plant-based foods, which has been very nice and very light. So, um, yeah, and as Yong was pointing out, this great sense of beauty of the land and everything that's gone into bringing this center together and all the generosity that it represents. So um, so it is, it is um, very special, it is very precious, and, and it's a little bit of a bubble, you know, so it's a protected space, um, and they're important to have these spaces, but um, we, we do have to, unfortunately, go out, and, um, or fortunately, some, some of you might be sort of raring to go, you know, and get out there. <laughs> but it is, you know, a challenge to, I think, for many of us to, to go and engage um, our lives and the world and what's waiting for us. Um, and I think Jung's encouragement about, you know, aligning ourselves with the right kind of view and perspective um, and this stopping and pausing and regathering is really the heart of what our practice is, to align with a sense of presence and to keep trusting that and deepening into that. Um, so... We, we do live in a very, I think it's important, and one thing I really wanted to name um, is that we do live in extraordinary times and very challenging times, as we've mentioned, and that that has an impact. Um, I was just looking at, there's an article, a, a um, interview with an um, Arab-American lawyer and poet whose name is... Lawrence Joseph, who was born in Detroit in the 1940s. And uh, he's uh, one of his recent poetry books is, is, uh, that's just come out is called So Where Are We? So in the interview, um, Mother Jones, a person representing Mother Jones, the magazine says, so where are we? And uh, Lawrence, Jones says, uh, Lawrence Joseph says, um, if, you, if by we you mean Americans, where we are collectively is in a state of substantial, violent and humanely destructive political chaos and forcefully being pushed back against it are acts of resistance grounded on the deepest human aspirations, justice and love. So I really felt that sort of encapsulated this um, intense meeting of two very different forces and being in the sort of crux of that, in the midst of that, and how impactful it is. And that's just in America. And of course, we have the planetary emergency situation that we're in where we're very aware of um, a very fast-changing world, primarily due to several reasons, but the, the um, warming of the biosphere and the impact of that and the implications of it are frankly quite terrifying and very conscious to us now. We're not really able to stay in denial for very long. And the other evening, uh, Jeannie and I were in Sebastopol. We went to listen to Bill McKibben give a, a talk, um, launching his latest book. He decided to write not uh, necessarily a sort of uh, a book just sort of laying out, again, the urgency of our times. He's written quite a lot about that, but he wanted to write a novel, a sort of, he called it a, a love letter to the resistors. And I think it's called something like um, Radio Free Vermont. Yeah, so, and it's funny, it's quite funny. And he was reading from that, but he was saying that uh, actually that it's not that it's in question that we'll be moving to a more renewable future, to a sort of solar wind-based energy. But it's a really, a, he said, that's inevitable because the economics are going that way. But really what the issue is that is the time. You know, we don't have a lot of time. We don't have endless time to make these transitions. So in the midst and the heart of what's happening, there's also this sense of pressure around the timeline that we have. In, in this sort of meeting of really, really, really colossal forces. And, and then just reading in other periods of history, like when there were transitions from before the First World War, leading what led up to the First World War, really it was, it was primarily uh, sort of 
stimulated by this this um, trying to control the energy, you know, the energy system of the planet from coal to oil. And then now we have an, a similar kind of um, you know shift happening. And, you know, and the implications of that, that ripple right down into our consciousness and to our way of being and, and the way of thinking and the way that we understand ourselves as human beings. And all of this is happening at speed. And so there's a lot of information, a lot of processing of data every day as things are changing very quickly. Both very difficult and destructive things, but also the feeling of this sort of colossal pressure like putting um, like a, a sort of contractions, the feeling of like midwifing and birthing also in the heart of that, a, a new world and a new consciousness that's also emerging. So it feels like we're sort of going through these profound contractions as a, as a, as a planetary system or consciousness that's trying to birth um, a different world and, and the dangers of that. Um, you know, that uh, birth is not always guaranteed, um, that it will go well. So we're midwifing something. And, and that midwifing of what's happening in the collective goes right down into our own hearts because this isn't a bystander sort of witnessing process. We're all participants in this process. We're all implicated in both the consequences of, of what's brought us to this point and the potential of where we might be going. And so there's something about the awakening of that, the pressure that's awakening us in ways that probably have never happened in the history of humanity. And it's, 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 so it also has an exhilarating side. As one of the people um, of the First Nations said, it's a bit like we're all at the uh, immune system of the planet. We're feeling this in our bodies and in our psyches and in emotions. And it's not comfortable. But what we can actually reflect on is that although the context changes, um, the practice stays the same. So um, I don't know if it's just that I have a patient for, maybe it's because I'm basically Irish, patient for the, the challenge, um, that I bring these things into the, into the room. But I think it's helpful to really really name um, and notice what's, what, where the dukkha is. And this is what the, the Buddha encouraged us in the, in the personal realm. You know, the, the, most, the heart of his most profound teaching, really, well, it's not most profound, they're all profound, but the heart of his, um, probably the, the core teaching that he gave, the Four Noble Truths after his awakening, is the encouragement to notice this experience of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness and suffering and rather than run from it and feel like something's gone wrong or blame ourselves or blame everyone else, the encouragement is just to turn to that and say this is, this is dukkha. And, and actually in the doing of the turning to reality, you know, it's a bit like if we get a diagnosis that we don't want to get, it's actually worse if we ignore it and it's, it gives you some agency to actually say this is happening and then to look at the causes and then begin to alleviate the suffering and to realize we can remedy the causes. So although the context is, has changed and is changing and is intensifying in our, in our world and in, on our planet, and that we're feeling that every day, the practice actually in some ways stays the same, the heart practice. And much of what we've been um, doing during this retreat is really aligning ourselves and heightening these practices, the practice of, of refuge. Really knowing where do we go um, when, we're, when we feel that intensity. Do we go into distraction or do we sort of get spun out and overwhelm, aversion, um, just feeling collapsed? I mean, we've done, we do all of those, you know, um, addictive tendencies that we all have. But, you know, but also, can we actually go to this very, very simple, how is it now? And aligning with something very simple like the, the breath, the body, one deepening breath. Yeah, so this, this sense of refuge, finding our refuge, was this is going to be increasingly important as the world around us changes 
and intensifies, that we know how to find refuge and that we know how to steady there. And it's not um, just a, a, a um, you know, it's a very profound act to turn back into just this moment to know how to place um, a, a, a way of being mindful within our experience. Just being, in, in some ways, what's interesting about increase of intensity or the experience of suffering or struggle is that actually we only have one choice left and that is to be mindful. And eventually we figure it out, you know, that, that when we're very mindful we, don't, we lessen the suffering and we cr- increase agency. So, you know, like, like all of these, um, the, these things that are difficult for us, that when we resist them, we don't really realize that actually what is difficult is quickening our awakening, quickening our growth of the path. So learning to take refuge, learning to, to build resiliency, you know, that's not collectively and personally, learning to these, these uh, practices that we've been doing of cultivating samadhi and gathering, um, steadying the mind, calming the mind, not just being spun out into the cognitive realm, into um, fear and aversion and, and sort of all sorts of unhelpful narratives, being able to calm and steady and bring the mind back to something skillful so that, it's, that it can actually be in service of this chanda that um, Yong was talking to, this sort of Chanda is like this, you know, this deep sense of enthusiasm or interest or passion for what we would like to fulfill and where we would like to go. So that this this calming and steadying. So this is in some ways the most challenging part of the practice. Little by little to just build that sense of capacity to steady within the moment in a very simple way like the sitting practice, having that in our daily life, being able to be with the breath, being able to be with the body in moments of driving, working, going to the store, moving around. How is it now feeling our feet on the ground in a queue or a line? You know, just rather than that feeling of pushing forward all the time into the next thing, drawing that energy back and resting back. How is it feeling the feet, letting go, back into this so that we're cultivating the ability to tolerate reality because that's really what we're pushing against. Like uh, Jaya was saying in one of her talks, quoting that impatience is a, a, a subtle aggression against reality. You know, that, that we're, you know, sort of that softening, the softening, so the ease within the moment. We don't have to be on high alerts, sort of tight bodies, sort of wired to go, but whatever's, whatever's happening, that sense of being able to relax and, and to be at ease as a, as a training. So that training continues. And then that within that resilience, knowing that uh, there's wise reflection, that uh, we can reflect, how is it now the hindrance is operating? What's obstructing? Not only in a, you know, a lot of the practices sometimes referenced more internally, um, but also externally. We're looking at hindrances manifested at systemic levels of the society. How do they manifest? How are they operating? How do I collude with them? And how can I attune my life to unhook from systems that are oppressive and hinder uh, other beings and ourselves? It's just uh, teaching the other day with um, Sebene in New York. And she was talking about how greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, looking at them at systems like the sort of wanton, um, unbridled capitalism being like a, this greed of, of insatiability. It's like just always having to consume, consume, consume or the, the hatred of, the, of racism, white supremacy, wanting to have a hierarchy of, of those that are in control, you know, and those, those systems of that favor, entitled, the entitled, 
in the society at the expense of others? How do we not notice that? How have we been shut down to that? So that that's a sort of inquiry, a heightening of the awakening in the inquiry. How do we how do we internalize that sense of entitlement? Or even being in America and not being sort of mindful of what's happening on the planet as a result of all of our lifestyles. You know, so that awakening, it's, it's just that opening of awareness and looking at not just internal greed, hatred and delusion, but everything that we're connected with is connected with systems that generate or, and can emerge from those energies that are undermining of the collective or delusion, you know, the sense of ownership um, of things and people. There's a lot of the patriarchy is not just about gender, but it's basically founded around the sense of, again, entitled ownership. And that, that, for, that one has um, a position of having the right to have more, to control and so on. And so all of these systems are internalized. And so the awakening process of being able to reflect, how does this operate? Not just as hindrances personally, but how's, how are they operating in the society? So this is also having knowledge is part of resilience, to see clearly. Because what you can see clearly, you can actually begin to liberate and not collude with. And, you know, you can begin to, to, um, you know, the resist, to resist those, that, those forces which generate and undermine well-being and equity and, and uh, the respect for each other. And then there's sort of reclamation to reclaim in the practice during this time together. We've been really exploring how to reclaim the sense of, the, of the, our own heart. You know, our own already awakened presence of being that doesn't need anything. It doesn't, it's not an attainment. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing is uh, spoilt. But just to recognize this pure essence of consciousness that's awake, aware, illuminating reality is, a, is the ground of reality, that which we, we ignore. Moments of turning to that, realizing this sort of immeasurable dwelling of the infinite and the timeless, always here and now. So this reclamation of the heart of our being, the reclamation in the qigong and the movement and the breathing and the respecting of the body, the reclamation of the sacred within all of life. So these are ways that we can orientate to reclaim the sense of connection with nature, that we're not just these isolated, lonely beings that have no meaning, being placed within within the cosmos and and connected with each other, seeing ourselves as a web of life, breathing with that, feeling into that, so that we are lessening those walls of the mind as we contemplated in the Heart Sutra, building these walls, you know, them and me, to really feel what's on the other side of that wall. Um, You know, are there bridges? Can we make bridges to them? Because that's going to be really important that we do that, that we find a ways of making bridges outside of the walls and the boxes that we live within. So we can explore these themes. So the refuge and resilience, and resistance to that which is harmful and the reclamation and response being able to realize we have agency, we can act, we can respond in the world. We're, we're not just, you know, victims of fate. So the Buddha didn't teach that. You know, he certainly responded. He, he changed things at profoundly systemic levels, made profound changes. And people wanted to kill him for it, actually. <laughs> he wasn't popular in, in all sections of society. That, that you know, that, that there's a risk in, in sometimes responding from ethical place, from a sense of justice, from a sense of love. Um, that, it's, that, it, that there's a leap that can happen. But what's so beautiful is that as we reconnect our response 
to that reclamation of the heart that there's, there is a guidance. You know, this living Dharma, as Ajahn Chah talked about, the Dharma is not just in a textbook. It's a living intelligence that guides as we listen. It will guide us, we'll hear it. It's intuitive. And it can actually generate great quantum leaps and shifts. And it's actually, I think, that, that upon which humanity will really, um, you know, our future will depend on very much, is our ability to make those shifts and leaps. And to recognize that part of what's happening in the times we're in is a lot of, of dismantling, dismembering, shattering of what has been secure for us. And that's, that's quite a shamanic process. You know, we can, we can completely freak out. Oh my God, all the things that I was secure about and sure of in my world are falling apart in this world, how comfortable it used to be. You know, that's something of an illusion in and of itself. But that actually it's a bit like the moment that um, Avodakiteshvara or Kuan Yin in the Tibetan story is practicing and wanting to really help all living beings and makes this vow, this great vow, comes down to the earth plane, wants to, is meditating, sending love, and just realizing that all the living beings are filled with sort of, you know, it's, you know they're violent and they're hateful and they're, they're uh, creating a lot of suffering. And so after a few lifetimes, Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara, sort of feels completely overwhelmed and complete failure. Just like this isn't working, you know. I really this is this compassion thing is not really doing it. And at that point, the, it's so intense. This feeling of like I've really tried. I've really, really tried. And look, there's even more suffering. And that's what we can feel it in these times. It's like it's it's not working. <laughs> and at that point, Avalokiteshvara completely shatters into a thousand pieces over the whole of the land. It's it's a terrible mess. And and this cry goes out from 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 her heart, his heart, their heart, uh, you know, of help. And Avalokiteshvara's guru, Amitabha, which represents the limitless light of the mind, of the heart, the undying light, uh, undying suchness of being, sort of comes and says, "Well, what's the problem?" As gurus do, you know, what's the matter? <laughs> You know, and and uh, you know, and and never so I I can't do it. I can't handle it anymore. And and uh, Amita said, "Well, you shouldn't have taken such ambitious vows." Basically, you know, it's like that was a pretty ambitious leap you did to try and rescue all living beings. So Amitabha takes compassion on these shattered pieces and starts to pick them all up, and then re put puts Avalokiteshvara back together again, but remodels Avalokiteshvara so that so that she appears not in just a, a single form, but appears with these thousand hands and eyes and eleven heads that can move and can see in all directions. And in the hands and eyes, there's all these response possibilities like nectar to soothe and axes to cut through obstructions and lassoes to tie up demons and books to give knowledge and, you know, and mirrors to reflect back the truth and arrows to pierce and open the hearts of human beings. So this is a, a beautiful metaphor, I think, of actually what's happening for us in these times is that we're shattering under the pressure of it all. And in that moment of shattering, it can feel like, my God, you know, this is, this is horrific. You know, it's what's going to happen. But to trust that there's, there's actually a reconfiguring happening as well in that shattering. But it's not a personal reconfiguring, I, I believe. I think it's a collective, that that larger body with a thousand hands and eyes has to be all of us together as we awaken together. And that each of us represents maybe one of those hands or one of those eyes or one of those responses that we don't have to do all of this on our own. We can't do all of this on our own. And if we think about it in those terms, it, it is very oppressive. But when we look around and we see so many extraordinary ways that this new world and these hearts are being born, 
you know, and, and into so many manifestations of, of innovation and creativity and, and beauty and, and hope and, and, and acts of, of um, amazing um, reclamation of the earth and of the lands. It is a struggle, it is a battle, but it's not all uh, difficult. There's also this uh, tremendous, from the necessity of the times, this, these tremendous leaps happening. You know, as, 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 um, as Sam said to Frodo, you should actually rewatch Lord of the Rings at least once a year to get orientated into our times. <laughs> it's a really good metaphor, you know, the eye of Sauron. <laughs> Guess, you know, what that might be, but <laughs> the all-seeing eye. And then as, as uh, Frodo's trying to get near to throw down this into Mordor, this terrible, terrible ring of power, which is, which is you know, that everyone wants this ring of power. And it's completely, as soon as it gets picked up, it distorts, you know, and, and, and completely um, destroys the soul and the heart of the person that's using it. You know, like, Gollum, my precious, my precious. You know, there's a lot of that in the political realm, my precious. You know, but it's a sort of really distorted being. It's completely lost the soul and humanity. So, you know, Frodo has this, you know, Frodo represents the sort of the, the hobbit, the human being, just really wants to go to the pub with his friends and have a good time. And he's got this huge task suddenly, you know, like what happened to the days when we could just go to the pub and forget it all and have a great time? You know, suddenly you have to save the whole planet, you know, it's, it's a little much, you know, it really is for the best of us. But anyway, he's got the tusk, got the ring, and he's sort of struggling to Mordor. And as you know, as he gets nearer and nearer and nearer, it gets more and more difficult, and there's more and more obstructions. It's like awakening. There's more and more sort of, you know, her, her, you know, struggles going on. And the, what do they call the Wraithworths, the orcs, and all of these guys? I mean, they're pretty frightening. Taking, you know, taking, taking, taking them down, and. And then, you know, at some point he just really wants to give up, like we want to give up, like Avadakiteshra wanted to give up. You know, he's getting nearer and nearer and and at a certain point he says, I can't do this, Sam. And Sam represents the ever-faithful, devoted sort of attendant and disciple that's sort of pretty cheerful and, you know, and just there, jolly, helping along, you know, really loves Frodo, wants to get him over the finish line. So, you know, Frodo's just going, oh, I can't do this anymore. You know, I mean, did that voice come up on the retreat? You know, I just can't do this anymore. I get it every morning, you know, I just can't. It's just like, the alarm goes, it's like, bam. Like, I just, okay, one more day on the, on the ropes. So I just can't do this anymore. And, uh, and, and Frodo said, no, but we've got to keep going. We've got to keep going. We've got to keep going. We've got this huge thing to fulfill. You know, there's this mission we have to fulfill. And, and Sam goes, well, why? Why do we have to do this? And I think that's a very good question. You know, why do we bother, really? And, um, and, uh, and Sam just says, well, you know, it's like those old tales of old, you know, when there are people's, you know, we aren't the first generations that have had this sense of, you know, how impossible and difficult at such calamitous times with these huge evolutionary colossal forces like, you know, like crashing together and this little hobbit in the middle of it going, what the fuck is going on, you know? <laughs> I just want my cup of tea and my piece of cake, you know? So, like, you know, it's, we're not the first generation that's felt that, you know? So, so, you know, Sam says, well, you know, this has happened before, you know? This is like, you know, we, we've been through this before, different storyline, but it's sort of familiar. And, you know, and, and they won through, the generations of old, they won through. And, but still, Frodo isn't that impressed. And so sort of Sam tries a different track. He said, listen, he said, there's goodness in this world and it's worth fighting for. And I think that's the clincher. You know, that's the clincher that, you know, it's there, there's always goodness within us, even at our most lowest moment. You know, we should never, ever give up on ourselves, never, ever even when we're in the pits, because it's, you know, it feels like to give up is the only option, but, you know, that's really delusion, and it will change, you know, so we never give up on ourselves, we should never give up on each other, however distorted and difficult it is, and 
never give up on humanity, that we just hold that light, that we hold that light. You know, think of what it must have been for Mr. Mandela, 27 years in a cell that was hardly bigger than his body, you know, and how many times he must have felt, this is useless, you know, I'm forgotten, I can't even get letters from my wife and my loved ones, I'm just incarcerated, um, you know, I've dropped off the end of the world and Robin Island literally off the end of the tip of Africa. He didn't know that there was all these forces going on around this anti-apartheid movement. He didn't know that. You know, he was isolated and, you know, and yet he, he didn't give up. He didn't give up and, and look what happened. You know, at the ripening of the right moment, he was able to step out of that prison and hold a, a light that was so bright that it basically uh, blinded the world with this or inspired the world with this beautiful vision of what is possible for us, you know, that, that we can live upon, beyond the apartheid of the, of the heart and the mind. You know, and then it slips back and it goes into the mud and, you know, and yet that, that spirit rises again and that spirit's within all of us. It's not extraordinary. You know that spirit was growing through through the intensity of 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 a of a period of of great trial and tribulation, yeah. and this is our trial and tribulation. So we hold that light, we take that light from our retreat. We've been very privileged to be able to be in this situation together, and so that you know we owe it really to take that light and to hold it as best we can, to remember it, to kindle it, to light it again and again every moment and each day, to help illuminate that which is in the shadows and to hold faith to, to this heart, to this goodness, and to the undying truth of that uh, hatred is never overcome by hatred, but only by love will hatred cease. This is the eternal law. Time, with relentless harvesting, your precious human life is short. As is all life, as it gathers proof of our faith through the pilgrimage of the night that tests the grounds of our being, so we may know the measure of courage and the wellspring of our heart from which we sip nectar. Just as the brown striped bug drinks from the white elder flower and the orange thin-winged butterfly skips through ochre grasses and the gray knowing wharves move through cold white snow and the rhinos through dry bush felt go as lions stalk impala along the river slow. Slow is the earth's rhythm, deep and unfathomable in our collective soul, the rhythm of the day's tick-tock, winding through the web of our connection of internet consumption, where we search what we hope to know. Because to truly know is to not know, and to not know is so much evidence of where faith can go. Gate, gate, paragate, Parasangate Bodhisvaha.
So we have a little time just to step outside, enjoy the night, the cool air. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.